Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, The Book of Judges. In this series, we'll walk through the Book of Judges and let it shine a light into the muddy waters of human rebellion. These stories are some of the most bizarre and interesting stories found anywhere. They're not just historical curiosities, they are glimpses of humanity as applicable today as they were back then. The stories reveal a God working above and through the chaos to bring redemption. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We'd love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to walk through the book of Judges. Um, Judges is an interesting book, and it cracks a window into the brokenness of our human souls. And in this book, you're going to see a nation wrestle with its identity and its relationship with God. You're going to see heroes and heroines arise who seem to be, have the potential to deliver Israel, but in the end, they can't. And, and the book of Judges shines a light on our rebellious nature. Now, full disclosure, the stories in the book of Judges are uh, some of the most interesting, some of the oddest, uh, and some of the most violent stories in the Bible. Um, and so if you're wondering if uh, a book like this can be relevant to your life today, just remember, while humanity has progressed in an unparalleled way since it was written, the defining issues of our human nature haven't changed in those 3,000 years. So uh, I want you to know that several of our life groups will be studying the book of Judges, so we encourage you to join a life group. Our life group season is kicking off today, so if you haven't joined one, we encourage you to go to our website, find the ministries page, click on life groups, and look at the life groups. Find one that has a day, a time, and a place that works for your schedule and join it, and you can see which ones are studying the book of, of Judges. Um, there will be a reading plan going out. It'll be on our uh, uh, website tomorrow, and we'll send it out in our news reminders, which is a little uh, plug. If you don't subscribe to our weekly email, we only send one a week, we encourage you to do so, and you can sign up for that on the website. And uh, we'll also encourage you, if you'd like to uh, study it on your own, if you can't make a life group, we really want people to be in life groups, but if you can't, we'll give you a link so that you can uh, sign up to do a study on your own. But uh, we would prefer you be in a life group because we think life really happens when we get together in small groups. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you that you've given us both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we thank you that they all work together to tell us the story of a relentless, loving God who will do whatever it takes to show us that you love us. So Lord, as we dig into the book of Judges, I pray that you would speak to us and that you would guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little background on the book of Judges. The book of Judges is the seventh book in the New Testament, going from the book of Genesis inward. Um, it begins after the death of Joshua. So just a little bit of your history of Israel, all right? Moses led Israel. Uh, Moses uh, was going to take the people to the promised land, but he sinned, and God said, Moses, you're not going to get to take the people to the promised land, but your successor, Joshua, will. Moses um, put Joshua as his successor. You can read about what Joshua did for Israel in the book of Joshua, named after him. And um, under his leadership, he took 
Israel into the promised land. And he helped conquer the inhabitants of the land. And then he, as God told him to, he divided the promised land amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, uh, this is a period of Israel's history before they had a king. And so God gave the tribes leaders. And it tells us in the book of Judges, those leaders were called judges. Now, that's a confusing title for us. We think of a judge as someone who sits in a courtroom and is a magistrate over a legal proceeding, but that's not what it meant in the book of Judges. These were geopolitical military leaders, okay? And there was a series of them. Now, that's a high-level view of the book of Judges, but to fully understand the book of Judges, you need to know the specific directions that God gave the people of Israel through Joshua. So, before I dive into Judges, I'm going to give you a little backstory from the book of Joshua. In the first chapter of the book of Joshua, God tells him to take Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land. Now, You need to understand that this was the land that we currently see as Israel today, and this land had inhabitants. It was occupied, but God had promised it to them, and so he was going to help them remove the inhabitants from this land. These inhabitants, most of them are known as Canaanites, and God made it very clear that nobody would be able to stand up against them because God would be with them. In fact, This is what God tells Israel about how they will be successful. So from Joshua chapter 1, God speaks and he says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. And do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. That's a promise of Scripture to Israel, but it's a promise to us today. Do you see what God's telling them? He's saying they will move into the promised land not because of their size, not because of their military might, but because they are dependent on God and obedient to God and his word. The book of Joshua records how the people, uh, for the most part, uh, depend on and are are obedient to God. And at the end of the book of Joshua, we see Joshua is nearing his life, and he sort of gives his his final message to the people because he knows his, uh, his health is fading, his body is near the end. And he takes time to remind Israel that as they settle now in the promised land, they still must obey God's law, and they must be dependent on him. Now, some of the specifics that God wants Israel to obey are found in those very books. Israel is told not to enter into covenants with other nations or to serve their gods or to intermarry with them. And and the purpose for driving out the Canaanites is not vengeful. It's not economic. It's spiritual. They are to remove those people who are there so Israel will remain spiritually pure. So they will still be connected to God and and seek God only. Ultimately, uh, they are to build a, a home country to serve God, a land where surrounding nations would be able to see that there's only one true God as they see 
that Israel has that relationship with God by the way they live their lives. But that's not exactly what happened with Israel. So this morning, I want us to look at three things that happened. Here's the first thing. The subtlety of compromise. Knowing about the book of Joshua sets the stage for the book of Judges. And so if you have a Bible handy or a Bible app, open up to the book of Judges. It's the seventh one in from the book of Genesis. So uh, we're going to look at Joshua 1. What I want to show you is going to be on the screen, but just a bit of history of some of this first chapter. It goes over some of the battles that the 12 tribes of Israel are fighting. And as you read through chapter 1, Honestly, it can be easy to overlook something critical that's going on in a very subtle but important way. And it all revolves around Israel's dependence on and obedience to God. So in verse 1, the Israelites ask God, who shall go and fight the Canaanites? And God gives his answers right there. And God says that Judah, the tribe of Judah, shall go. But Judah must like to do things with other people. And Judah invites the tribe's people of Simeon to come and, and join them. And, uh, you know, honestly, think about that. From a, from a military standpoint, it makes success. The more, it, it makes sense. You have more troops. The more troops you have, uh, the better your military is going to be. They're not going to be outnumbered. They're going to be able to fight and win their victory. And so, you know, it makes military sense. It makes lo- it's logic to us. Uh, But the deal is this, Judah didn't do what God said. They didn't obey what what God said. They did what they wanted to do their way instead of God's way. Now, when you think about doing things that make military sense, let me remind you of something that doesn't make military sense from Scripture. If you go back to the sixth chapter of the book of Joshua, you have the story of the battle of Jericho. Now, if you recall the story of the battle of Jericho, it makes no military sense whatsoever. So Israel comes up to Jericho and God says, I'm not going to have you fight Jericho's king and their soldiers. This is what I want you to do. For six days, I want you to gather the priests. I want you to gather the army. And I want you to march around the city one time each day. For six days. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times. And on the seventh, at the end of the seventh time around, I want the priests to blow their horns and the military, to, the soldiers to shout, and then you will defeat the king of Jericho and their army. And if you know the story, When they shout and uh, blow their horns, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down and they're able to defeat them. Again, sometimes following God doesn't make sense to our human minds. It's obedience, though, that God is always looking for, not human logic, not conventional wisdom. So let's go back to the book of Judges. Later in that chapter, the tribe of Judah, again, is supposed to drive out the people uh, from the plains uh, of the promised land. But it says that the plains people have chariots made of iron. That's pretty big technology for uh, 1000 BC. They have chariots of iron, and it says um, they couldn't move them out. And so they didn't fight them. They just let them be. But they're disobedient. 
This lack of obedience to God and lack of dependence on God seems to to, uh, slip through to the other tribes from Judah. The tribe of Benjamin doesn't drive out the Jebusites who were in their part of the promised land. The tribes of Ephraim and Zebulun don't drive out the Canaanites from their territories. The tribe of Asher doesn't even try to drive out the Canaanites. They just decide to live among the Canaanites. And the tribe of Dan, uh, they're so timid, they're so unwilling to take a risk and trust God um, that they let the inhabitants of their land confine them to a much smaller part of the promised land. But you see what's going on? The Israelites sometimes obey God, but when it's inconvenient, or more importantly, when they're afraid, it gets the best of them, and, and so they do a little bit of what they're supposed to do, but, but really, um, they're looking to do what's safe. They're looking for plan B. Now, uh, maybe you didn't notice this behavior, but God sure did. That's how subtle compromise can be. You know, honestly, as I was beginning to study this book, you know, I, I just sort of read it through, read it in the Bibles. I didn't notice the, the subtle compromise. It, it, it sort of slipped past me, but then I began to study it. Um, look at what God says in the beginning of chapter 2 of the book of Judges. God says, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into this land. I swore to give you, to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Israel disobeyed God by not keeping their promise to God, by not moving the Canaanites out as they were supposed to, by not destroying the pagan altars and the places of worship. They disobeyed God. Now, let me pause for a moment because as I told you that there's, there's going to be a lot of violence in the book of Judges. Already you're probably sort of pushing back, but here's what I need you to do. I, I need you to Pause your 21st century frame of reference. This happened over 3,000 years ago, all right? And so we have to put on uh, a frame of reference and look at it from that standpoint, okay? We, we have to set aside um, for a moment what we know about the New Covenant, the New Testament that Jesus brought, and we have to understand that we're talking about the Old Covenant. And so, because really, as we look at this, what happens is it looks to us like ethnic cleansing. It looks like genocide, uh, but um, that's not what's going on. Remember, actually, that, that God allowed uh, Canaanites to come into Israel in certain places. Rahab, Rahab was the prostitute, and she and her family were the ones who helped Israel defeat Jericho. And because of that, they were allowed to live in Israel, and and they became part of the people of Israel. So this is not an imperialistic conquest. It's not a a campaign. And we can understand this because, number one, they're not taking plunder. They're not taking slaves. They're just trying to move the people out. And the purpose is to spiritually clean the promised land from idols and false religions so that Israel is able to live in covenantal faithfulness to the Lord. 
by allowing the Canaanites to continue to live in the land or by making covenant agreements with them for whatever reason, the end result is that they're compromising and slowly assimilating what's going on in the Canaanites' world. The basic teaching is this, that God wants lordship over every area of our lives, not just some areas of our lives. God wanted Israel to clear the whole of Canaan so that his people would not end up living with idols as well as with him. He didn't want there to be, so to speak, a spiritual worship affair going on. God says, this is what I want you to do. So even though they didn't wholly reject God as their God, they didn't wholly accept God as what he was calling them to do. So that's the why to what God required of the Israelites. The Israelites did some of what he commanded them to do, but not all of it. Uh, maybe they thought that they did enough. Uh, they, were the, uh, they were the next generation of Israelites. Two generations before had died in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. Uh, Joshua was faithful, and he led the next generation from Moses into the promised land, but, but as you see, he eventually died. And so this is the third generation, and this generation is loosening up in their obedience to God and their dependence on God. They wanted to do things their own way instead of God's way. Do you see the subtlety of compromise? Obedience can be hard. Obedience can be hard for us. We rebel against somebody telling us what to do. Uh, dependence can feel restrictive and we desire freedom. And so we push back. And we can begin to compromise little by little until it takes us further and further away from what God wants us to do. Uh, let me share with you just a, 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 something that goes, that's going on in an American Christianity, and it actually even happens here, okay? 20 years ago, people considered themselves to be regular tenders of church if they went four times a month, all right? Today, by all observations, many people consider themselves a regular attender of a church, even when they attend church far less. My anecdotal observation is that for some people, it can be three times a month, two times a month, one times a month, one time a month, even less. Um, you know, let me just show you what, what I've observed uh, as a pastor. You know, as a church, I, I, we feel like we have about 400 plus people who call Valley Brook their church home. Um, one of the things that we do to try to reach people for Christ is we want to make sure that we're, we're tracking how many first-time guests we get. On, a, on an average, uh, for the past 10 years, we have over 300 first-time guests. And that being said, with all of those numbers, our average attendance is about 350 and the reality is, is this, is that over the past decades, the idea of what is um, regular attendance has changed. Despite that scripture tells us that we are supposed to not give up the habit of, re, of meeting together. Despite what scripture tells us that we're supposed to lean into being the body of Christ, being uh, the bride of Christ, we see that little bit of compromise that slips into certain parts of our lives. Now, we know it's countercultural to lean into what God calls us to do, but that's what we encourage 
so we can fight compromise. Pastor Tim Keller says this, God calls, uh, God's call to his people then and now is to co- combine spirituality with bravery. True discipleship is radical risk-taking because true disciples rely on God to keep his promises and to bless them and not on their own instincts, plans, or insurance policies. As followers of Jesus, we need to be brave in our obedience to and dependence on God. Don't be afraid to follow Jesus, even when it's countercultural. Don't play it safe with Jesus by having a plan B, just in case things don't work out the way God said they would. That's the beginning of compromise. Think about it this way. If Jesus played it safe... We wouldn't be here right now. Israel's subtle compromises begin to take them away from God day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, generation by generation. Israel's subtle compromises also led to this, the slippery slope to idolatry. Did you notice that when it came to Israel removing the Canaanites who had iron chariots, it says they were unable to remove them because of the chariots. It it sounds like they can't do it because the military technology of the Canaanites is is too advanced. But when you get to chapter 2, God says that they disobeyed him. In other words, It wasn't that Israel couldn't remove them. It was because they wouldn't remove them because they were afraid. They felt like they were outnumbered. They were were looking at it from human standpoints instead of remembering that God said that he would be with them always, that they were supposed to be courageous and brave and trust in him. God's ways are countercultural, and he told them to drive the people out, even though they had more advanced weaponry, even though it scared them. And so thus, the Canaanites stayed in the promised land along with their false gods, idols, and places of worship. And let's look at what happens. In verse 10 and following, we read this. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, in other words, they died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Those are the false gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Baal and Ashtoreths were the false gods. It was the, it was the king and queen of the gods of the Canaanites. Okay, So they're, they're serving not the God of Israel. They're serving these false gods. So the generation of Joshua and his peers have passed away and their children did not share the same passion for their faith. And so this generation of Israelites ran after whatever made them happy. In anger, God allowed raiders to come in and attack Israel and to defeat them. And 
then we see God's compassion and his mercy and his grace. Because this is what we read a little further on. It says, the Lord raised up judges. Remember the judges uh, this book is named after? The judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. So in God's mercy, this is where God sends in leaders. The leaders that we call judges. But look what happened almost immediately. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Now, that's a harsh word, but Scripture says that Israel prostituted itself to the other false gods. Now, I know that's a, that's a provocative image, um, you know, the whole idea behind prostitution is that, uh, is, well, we know what it's about, so we won't have to go there, but, but it's, the, it's this idea that um, it, it's an intense relationship that's meaningless. He's saying, you're giving yourself to this intense relationship with these false gods, but it's meaningless. It's not going to take you anywhere. You're not going to find love. You're not going to find mercy. You're not going to find grace. You see, God sees all of our sin, all of it, as idolatry and thus as adultery. He doesn't merely want us to know him and obey him like you do a, a king or a queen. Or, or he doesn't want you to, to follow uh, somebody just like you would a leader. He wants us to know him and to love him. There's this idea, this imagery of the marriage covenant between Israel and God, between the bride of Christ, the church, and Jesus. And so there's this idea that, that what he's calling us to is an exclusive commitment that's what he's talking about, that's deep, that's intimate, that's selfless love. And, and that's why he calls us the bride of Christ to be married to Christ, our Savior. Maybe to our amazement, maybe to Israel's amazement, God continues to pursue his unfaithful, wandering people both then and today. Now, if you're thinking, well, I don't have to worry about worshiping false idols because there aren't any idols, any altars to fight false gods here, I'd say think again. We all know of idols that are all around us. Some of them make sense when you stop and think about it. Things that we get addicted to, things uh, that are obvious, things like drugs, like alcohol, like pornography, like gambling. But then there are some that are less obvious. Politics and political parties, retirement funds, social media, and even more personal things. Uh, like our loved ones. A loved one can become an idol. Um, like our pride. Uh, like our, our pleasure. And, and the subtleties of these things we idolize escape our grasp. We, we don't see it that way. I remember as a kid, uh, something uh, my pastor said, you know, that I still remember today. He says, anything you spend more time with than God is an idol. Well, that'll cause you to pause and think. It did when I was 16, and it still does today when I'm 50 years older than that. 40 years older than that. 40, yeah. 
Math is not my strong suit. Uh, Pastor uh, John Mark Comer says this. He goes, uh, he talks about culture's view of secular salvation. And he points out our culture's fascination with our, our inner child. He says it's a type of idolatry saying salvation becomes rediscovering your inner self, which is in everything from soul cycle to yoga to self-help to Hollywood. The, the whole find your inner center, speak your truth, rediscover who you are, the obsession with personality theories. He goes, some of, some of that has some good stuff in it, but this is a salvation model, he writes, that becomes how do I get back to that inner self instead of how do I get back to God? All of the focus of that self-help competes with our relationship with God, and it becomes an idol. So let me ask you, what competes for God's place in your life? Are you being unfaithful to God by allowing something to have a higher place in your life than God? Let's talk about this last thing, the danger of not remembering and not honoring God. Let's go back to verse 10 in chapter 2. It says, After that whole generation had been gathered up to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what they had done for Israel. It's striking and alarming that within a generation, the children and grandchildren of Joshua and his generation neither knew the Lord or what he had done for Israel. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't know about what God did, but what it really means is that the history of what God had done for his people was no longer meaningful to the current generation of Israelites. Now, all we have to do is look at the compromises that the people of Israel made that led to a half-hearted devotion to the Lord. And now it says the children and the grandchildren were serving and worshiping false gods. One scholar writes this, It's always impossible to lay blame neatly when one generation fails to pass its fate on to the next one. Did the first generation fail to reach out? Or did the second generation just harden their hearts? The answer is usually both. Mistakes made by a Christian generation are often magnified in the next nominal generation. Commitment is replaced by complacency and then by compromise. So think that through. All of us in this generation, and I know there's multiple generations in this room, but all of us bears the responsibility, the responsibility of teaching the next generation of Christ followers to remember and to honor God. Parents, grandparents, but yes, single adults, adults without children, we all must own it and model it and live it and teach it. We must do whatever it takes to keep our relationship with God and the body of Christ fresh and relevant so we can share that with people that don't know God. So where does this all take us? In 1990, uh, George Barna wrote a book, and you're going to laugh at the title, particularly the second part. The, the, the first part, the, the title was The Frog in the Kettle. The, the subtitle was this, What Christians Need to Know About Life in the Year 2000. All right, he wrote that 30 years ago. 
Um, it sounds a little dated, uh, but, but here's what he does. In the book, he makes the point that cultural secularism is increasing in this country, in the body of Christ, and we're unaware of it. And so he tells the familiar story. It's the story of, uh, it's sort of gross, but what scientists have discovered about frogs and kettles of water. He says, place a frog in a boiling uh, kettle of water and it'll jump out immediately because it can tell that it's in a hostile environment. But place a frog in a kettle of room temperature water and it will stay there, content with its surroundings, and slowly, very slowly, increase the temperature of the water over time. And this time the frog doesn't leap out. But it just stays there, unaware that its environment is changing. Continue to turn up the burner until the water is boiling and the frog will be boiled too. Dead. The point he's making is what we see in the book of Judges and, and what we need to understand about the culture that we live in in our lives today. Christ followers are like the frog in the kettle when it comes to our culture. Sometimes we're not aware that the culture is slowly changing around us and it's changing us and pulling us away from God. And so we have to do whatever it takes to counteract what our culture does. We're called to live in the world but not be of the world. So let me close with three questions. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. These are three questions that I want to encourage you to write them down. They will be uh, online tomorrow. So if you don't write them down today, they'll be there. But, but there are three significant questions that you and I need to deal with as we study this book of Judges and, and see what it's talking about. Here's the first one. Ask yourself, where am I compromising in my faith? Where am I compromising in my faith? Here's the second one. What are the idols in my life that are competing for God? What are the idols that are competing with God in my life? And here's the last one. What can I do to remember all that God has done for me and pass it on to others? What can I do to remember all that God has done for me and pass it on to others? And, and I just need to remind all of us, this is something not just for parents, it's for all of us. Because the responsibility li lies on our shoulders to share with people who don't know about the saving grace of Jesus, that he came to save us. So I want to close with a, with a prayer and then we're going to move into a, a song that, that really is a beautiful song about letting God work in our lives. Uh, letting Him change us, you know, like grapes are uh, crushed to make wine. That's the imagery. So that's going to be my prayer as we move into the song. Father, I pray for each and every one of us Lord, that we will be completely overwhelmed by your grace and that it will not be something that we compromise on, that we will accept your grace, that we will live under that grace and that we will be obedient to you and dependent on you. 
Lord, I pray that we will let nothing compete for your place in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we will pass it on, our faith on to everyone who doesn't know about you, uh, from the youngest child to the oldest man or woman. And Father, if you need to crush our wills for your will to be done, we pray, let it be so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.